For anyone who might be visiting, or as I had mentioned in prayer, for some of our college students that haven't been with us as of late, uh, let me catch you up to speed. Just two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series I'm calling In Need of a Prophet. It's paralleling the concerns of our day to what was going on in the Old Testament period under the rule and reign of Ahab. So the first sermon introduced that wicked time of Ahab's rule and how with his wife Jezebel he was introducing Baal worship into the Israelite religious faith rather than only worshiping God. And then last week we met the prophet that was sent, uh, the prophet Elijah, sent to bring God's word to the people who had been turning their back on it for far too long. Uh, We continue where we left off last week by reading this morning from 1 Kings 17. We're going to finish up the chapter starting in verse 8 and going through verse 24. In your pew Bibles, that's found on page 351, or the words can be followed along with on the screen. I know it's not on the screen, but I'm going to actually start in verse 7. Just a reminder that after a while, the brook where Elijah was dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then picking up in verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it, and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. He cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. 
And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah told the, took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned in my brief before we read the text, that we are talking a little bit about the current circumstances we find ourselves in our culture. And one of the great questions that people often wrestle with in our current culture in America is, what is happening to the church? And why does it seem like attendance and participation are on such a steep decline that the average attendance on Sunday mornings from years past is significantly less than it was before? How do we understand that? And what do we do with this? And while there are many answers to that question, one of the ones that I have positive over a while is that in many ways, Many people don't perceive a need for God as much anymore. For many of us, if we think back just a generation or two, or even for ourselves, there was a time in history where you or your parents or your grandparents or great-grandparents looked at their life and they saw the struggles that they were having and they decided to take a great step of faith and move from one country to this country, doing so in the hope that a better life might be provided for you, their descendants. And that step did take a lot of faith. They wondered, will the job be there? Will life be better? Will I be able to learn the language and get enculturated into that new country? And so they clung to God. They made those decisions in great prayer. And for most, if not all of them, God answered. And they realized that God blessed them through some of those difficult decisions and times of struggle and hardship. And therefore, we are the benefits because our lives are much more comfortable, far better than it was. But in that, our perceived need of God has diminished. Life is comfortable. Our closets are full of clothes. We don't have to worry of if we're going to have something to wear, but what we want to wear. Our pantries, freezers, and fridge is full of food, and we don't have to ask if there's something to eat for the day, but what of all of the choices available to us should we eat? And if anything runs out, we easily run to the grocery store and replenish it. When we get ill, ill, sick, or have injuries, any ailment, we just go to the doctor and they take care of it. They diagnose it, they treat it, and we are healed and we move on with our lives. And God's presence, our need for God, at least as we perceive it, has declined. And therefore, our thoughts about how much we should return to God has declined. Because if we don't need God, what does he need us for? And we wonder if he should have so much input on our lives since we're able to take care of so much on our own. 
Well, again, in the time that we are looking at in 1 Kings 17, it was a time where God was desperately needed, but where he was being ignored. We remind ourselves that there was this ter- terrible drought that was going on in judgment against Ahab. And this week, we learned that this drought was not just affecting a small area, but it was affecting the whole region of this part of the world. When Ahab failed to be the king that he was supposed to be, when Israel failed to be the nation that God had called them to be, it wasn't just them that were paying the consequences for those failures and disobedience, but it was broadly affecting many, many people. And even in that, I think there's a point that needs to be made for us today. Oftentimes when we face temptations or give in to sin, we do so with the thought, well, it's not going to really hurt anybody except for ourselves. It's one of those lies, middle school students, that the devil often tells us that, well, you're the only one that is going to have to pay the consequences. But that's rarely how sin works. The reality is that when we sin, it is not just we that end up paying the consequences to those sins, but many, many others as well. I thought of maybe trying to come up with some examples, but I'm sure that you can come up with many of your own where you see one person give in to a temptation and choose to rebel against God and the decision that that one person made affected their family, affected a community that they were a part of, affected a whole church, or affected a whole nation of people because of their rebellion and disobedience. And it doesn't even happen throughout space and different people, but it happens throughout time. The sin of one person affects generations to follow. And it is a lie that we assume that when we sin, well, it's no big deal because we will pay the consequences if they had to be paid. No, sin has an effect far beyond the individuals that commit that sin. Well, when Elijah continued to feel the consequences of this sin and the, the brook where he was staying and being sustained at dried up, then the word of the Lord came to him. And since we've been emphasizing the word of the Lord and the prophet bringing the word of the Lord, it should call to our attention to pay attention to that detail. And so the word said to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now it's abundantly clear that in giving this word to Elijah, this is part of God's ongoing protection and provision and security of Elijah during this season of drought. But even in this word, you have to recognize that there are some challenges if he were to obey it. Uh, First of all, we recognize that Elijah is being sent to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Now, as soon as we hear that, we can remember that that's actually exactly where this whole mess had started. Looking back at uh, chapter 16, verse 31, we had learned that Ahab was married to Jezebel, who was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. 
And so when Elijah is sent to Zarephath, which is of Sidon, Elijah is going into the very heart of where Baal worship is, outside of Israel. But in doing that, there's an interesting thought. At this time in history, where was the word of God more likely to be received? Where was Elijah, the prophet of God, going to be safer and more secure? The sad reality was that at this particular time in history, the people who were supposed to be God's people, the recipients of this word, were actually the ones who were most in opposition to the prophet that God had sent to bring that word. Jesus develops this in Luke chapter 4 when he talks about how a prophet is not received in his own hometown. And then he makes reference to Elijah being sent to this Sidonian widow, even even though there were many other widows in Israel. But it was a time when that word was going to be rejected and not received. And that's part of the point that Jesus was making during his day in referring to this story. But what is more, not only is Elijah being sent to Sidon, where this all began, outside of Israel, but he's also being sent into the care of a poor widow. Someone who was not in a good position in this society, who themselves were not doing well. He's he's transferring his trust to the daily feeding of these ravens that were bringing him food, meat and bread every day, into the care of a widow. In, in some ways, a parallel to today would be God saying, uh, go, leave this area, and I want you to go to San Francisco, and I'm going to let you find a homeless woman who's going to care for you there. It sounds ridiculous. And so it takes a lot of faith for Elijah to move forward in trusting that word. But, but if it was challenging for Elijah to trust that word, that was nothing compared to the word of the Lord that came to that widow in Zarephath. Sure enough, when Elijah gets there, he finds a widow by the gate and he asks her for something to drink. Fine enough. But then he asks her for something to eat. And that's when we find out how widespread and devastating this drought had been, affecting the crops and bringing them into a time of famine as well. We learn that this widow had so little food that she was literally collecting a few sticks so that she could go back, put the bit of flour, last little bit of oil into the pan, and cook up what she believed was literally going to be her and her son's final meal before they waited for hunger to take their lives. But then, Elijah says in verse 13, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Now, if it was asking a lot of Elijah to trust in going to a foreign land in the care of a widow... How much more is he being asked of this widow to give first some of the little bit of food that she has to this prophet? And when you hear that kind of request, again, I think it makes us think about what God asks of us and how often we can complain that it's too much. Why does God want so much of our time? It's my time. And I have to come to church every week 
maybe twice, to join a Bible study and to serve, that's, that's too much, God. You're asking too much of my finances. Sure, I love to, to help out with people here and there and to support programs that I believe in, but I'm going to make sure that my money is taking care of me first, and I'm going to make sure that I can make the car payments and the house payment and take care of myself and the things that I want to do, and then if there's leftovers, I can share that with others. To ask more, that's too much. God, why do you want to get involved in all of these areas in my life? Why do you care about my sexuality? Why do you care about how I choose to relax on the weekends? Why do you have stuff to say about my business practices? Stay out of that part of my life. You're asking too much of me. That kind of a response sounds incredible when we compare what was being asked of this widow. But make sure that you know that even in that demanding word comes alongside of it a promise. The promise to Elijah is that God would take care of him and he would be sustained. And the promise to this widow is given in verse 14 when Elijah continues and says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And what is learned right away is that this difficult, challenging word that commanded a lot of this woman was actually a word of blessing. If and when this poor widow was listening, willing to listen to this word of the Lord, then God was going to preserve and protect her, which he does. Even though there was that tiny bit of flour and little bit of oil left after she makes the cake for Elijah, the next time she goes back, she finds enough for a meal for her and her son and Elijah. And the next time she goes back, it's still there. And for, as it says in the text, many days, all three of them were preserved and provided for as God miraculously replenished that little bit that remained and kept them going. And it's another reminder that God's word is not too much. That he actually gives his word and calls us to obedience for our benefit and blessing when we obey because in obeying, we find that there was a reason for that call on our lives. At least that's how it looks in this story for a while. Because in an unexpected twist, all of a sudden, this son, where it had seemed like it was God's will to preserve and protect through this famine, he gets sick. And he ends up dying. And both the widow and Elijah wonder, God, if you were trying to preserve it, why now do you bring death into this household? And they blame God for taking his life. And in that, though, Elijah acts in faith, and he takes the, the boy up and prays over him. And the Lord, it says in verse 22, listen to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And in hearing that, we learn an awful lot of God, about God in this text. 
Whenever we study scripture, there are times where it's tempting to think that these stories are trying to teach us about Elijah or about the faith of the widow or about ourselves even primarily. But the first goal of scripture is to reveal God. And in this text, we learn an awful lot about God and how uh, he moves beyond all kinds of boundaries. You see, back in these days, when a nation had a religious faith, it was the faith of that nation. That the gods that they worshipped had the same domain on a, on a map that the nation had dominion over. And, and so the people tried to expand the dominion of their gods beyond those boundaries so that they could enjoy the blessing of their gods as they did so. And throughout the time of Ahab's reign, what's clear that is taking place is that the idol Baal is trying to encroach upon the Lord's domain of Israel. But this story about God breaking is about God breaking past those boundaries. A likely reason why he sent Elijah to Sidon was due to the fact that it proved that Baal was incapable, this God of rain and storms was incapable of even blessing and helping his own territory and what was supposed to be his own people. And if he couldn't help the Sidonians, why should Israel welcome him into their territory? And that's the negative side of seeing things. Positively, what it is demonstrating is that God is not bound by any political boundary whatsoever. That he is the God over all of the earth. And so when he says it is going to rain, that is when it's going to rain. And when he says the rains will not fall, he has control over all parts of the earth in his command. And while that is true for political boundaries, we find that to also be true in even the boundary of death. In the mythology of the Sidonian religion, Baal was the rain god. But he was subservient to the greater power of Mot, the god of death. And every year when the dry seasons came, Baal was killed in death and had to remain dead until he was in some ways resurrected to new life and brought new rains to the area. And so he was under the authority of Mot, the god of death. But in raising this widow's son from the dead, God is proving that he has authority over all, even death. He is the one that brings and sustains life. And that there is no boundary where he cannot cross and claim his authority, his power, his reign, and his rule. Because, uh, next point. In response to this, the fact that this widow's son is raised from the dead, obviously she rejoices over what takes place. And in the final verse, verse 24, she proclaims, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Which on the one hand is a wonderful testimony and a coming to faith of this foreign woman, but on the other hand, it can seem a, a little late. Hadn't for many days this woman been sustained from day to day with the miraculous providing of flour and oil in the jar and the jug? 
But it's not until her son is raised from the dead that she's finally able to see, believe, and trust. But again, I think that's something that we can relate to. When we think about God's word and his decree for our lives, we want to know, all right, God, if I obey, will you bless me? Will I see the miracles being performed in my life? And, and we want great shows of God's provision and, and him showing up. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God gave a great demonstration of his presence and his power to our world so that all people would be able to see the God that he is and believe in his name? And yet when we ask for those kinds of big, flashy shows, what we often forget is what this widow woman forgot. All of the many little ways that God provides and sustains us from day to day. The clothing in our closet is a gift from God. The food in our homes is a blessing of his hand to us. The medical care we receive, every good gift is from our Father in heaven. And how often in search for bigger, better things... Do we forget to thank him for all of the things he already has done and is doing in our lives? But at the same time, how awesome is our God that he has demonstrated his power and control and given us the greatest need of our life, which is hope beyond the grave. In this story, we learn that a prophet was needed to remind the people of how God's word might ask a lot of us, but that in obedience, not only do we find those daily little blessings to sustain us in our lives, but hope for life to come. And therefore, I think it's a wonderful story to prepare us as we get ready to partake of the sacrament of communion. Because in many ways, the story told at that table is the same story told here. First of all, Whenever we think of Jesus, we should think about his perfect obedience to the word of God. And yet, when we think about that, we should never forget how much that obedience cost him. He sacrificed his place in glory to come to this earth. He sacrificed his comfort. He sacrificed his safety. He gave his very life, never once saying that's asking too much, but always obeying. And he obeyed not for his benefit so that his life would go better or be easier or that he would receive glory. In fact, almost the opposite happened. Life was hard for Jesus, but he did all of that for our benefit. And that's what this supper reminds us of. As a meal of bread and wine is a reminder that we need God to provide for our daily bread. That every breath we breathe, that the food we eat is all a gift from God, sustaining us and carrying us to the next moment of life so that we can live for him and serve him. But it is also a reminder that we have our greatest need met in the work of Christ. That because he said yes to God and sacrificed everything that he was and all that he had in order to bless us. 
we know that he bore the sins, or the wrath of God on our sins, on our behalf. And in his resurrection from the dead, we are given the promise of eternal life with him, hope beyond the grave. So that when we die, we know that though our lives on this earth might never be revived as it was for this boy, that our lives in heaven is secure and we will live eternally with him if we look to Christ in faith. And so that is the great hope of this text, the, the word of the prophet for us this morning. When God asks us of stuff, it seems like a lot at times because it's ours and we want it. But in the face of Christ and what he did for us, how can we ever say to him, no, that's too much. So we are invited to respond to God's word in our willingness and obedience. And when we do, what we find is that God is there to provide, to carry and sustain for all of the little things in life and even for the greatest need. And in seeing the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, we too say with the widow, now I know that your word is true and that we can truly and completely trust in your offer of salvation. That's my hope for all of us, is that in hearing the great word of what Jesus has done for us through his sacrifice and resurrection, that we receive the truth of that word and strive to live for him in obedience to that word as well. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word, but in thanking you for that gift, we acknowledge that oftentimes that word asks much of us. We feel as though it's asking a lot to make decisions in line with your commandments. We feel it is a lot when you ask of our time or our finances or our gifts. But in comparison to what you were willing to give, it's nothing. And so we humbly thank you for all of your many gifts, from the gifts that we often neglect to acknowledge from day to day, but most especially as we approach this table for the gift of your son and the hope that we have through his death and resurrection. May that be proclaimed and remembered today again as we partake of the memorial of his body and his blood and as it now calls us to a new life in you. All this we pray in your holy name. Amen.